hey, we're going to find unicorn condoms. Amazon. We're going to find the Colorado Avalanche baseball hat. Amazon. We're going to find Super Bad on LaserDisc. Amazon. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. I'm fucking McLovin' it. And approved doomsday bunker. Here is Ryan the Area Man. Since the founding of America, its citizens have been free to worship as they please. Freedom of religion is certainly uh, enshrined in our Constitution and really part of the American DNA. Our tolerance for new religions has allowed new beliefs to blossom. The United States is just a very rich religious cauldron of ideas. But that cauldron has also spawned some of the most destructive leaders in American history. Jim Jones always was predicting the end of the world. When doomsday prophets forecast an apocalypse, the fallout can be deafening. Leave with us. He was doing suicide drills. When you believe the end of the world is coming, where do you hide? Fully self-contained, underground living. They were gathering the weapons. Thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition. And what happens when the doomsday doesn't come? That's when we started noticing bodies. Using unprecedented access and never-before-seen footage. This is the inside story of America's doomsday cults. And those who join them. God has given America to the free. America's religious heritage stretches back to its first days. It was founded by people who were fleeing persecution for their unusual or unorthodox and non-conformist views. People came here to flee the oppressive uh, kind of regimes in Europe, and they wanted to come here so that they could freely worship. Freedom of worship became enshrined in America's constitution. New religions were founded. Some with extreme beliefs. Culturally, the word cult typically means a religious group that is seen as very strange, possibly dangerous, secret, unknown. Most dangerous of all are those cults led by Doomsday Prophets. Charles Manson, David Koresh, Jim Jones. Time and time again, America has watched messianic leaders manipulate, abuse, and kill. 
That's a dynamic that happens over and over again in our history. There I am. Whenever people see that kind of, of strong leader, I think they get afraid. In the late 1980s, a woman who claims to be a prophet tells her followers to build something extraordinary in a Montana valley. They first came here in 1981, bought land here. By 1989 and 90, they were in full preparation mode for apocalypse. It's an underground city destined to house over 700 people for seven years. And it's being constructed on the orders of one woman. Ladies and gentlemen. Elizabeth Prophet. Heart flames of the great light of freedom. She was the leader of a little-known religious group called Church Universal and Triumphant. For decades, the story of the shelters and why they were created has been shrouded in secrecy. But a former church insider has broken ranks to reveal all. His name is Sean Prophet. He's Elizabeth's son. I'm going back there to tell a story, and really, I think it's a story that needs to be told. Now an ex-church member, Sean's returning to Montana to make a self-funded documentary about his time in the church. But he's being monitored. They're letting us know that they're watching so that we don't try to sneak around and get in there. Just beyond this gate is Royal Teton Ranch. Church Universal and Triumphant bought the land in 1981 and still operates there today. In recent years, they have had little contact with the media, leading some to wonder if they have something to hide. I don't like to use the word cult because I think that it automatically is prejudicial, but I, I do have strong feelings about, you know, the negative effects of that group. Sean's father, Mark Prophet, began the religion in the 1950s. When he died, his wife, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, took over leadership of the church. Key to the belief system is the existence of so-called ascended masters, historical figures who have achieved divine status. These ascended masters were, I guess, the best and the brightest, supposedly, of humanity who had perfected themselves and ascended. Jesus Christ was one of the ascended masters. So was an 18th century count known as Saint Germain. By chanting and meditation, Elizabeth Prophet claimed to gain exclusive access to the ascended master's wisdom. Will not withhold my blessing from this people and this land. She was essentially becoming, you know, this the spokesperson for these masters, who of course no one else could see. Elizabeth Prophet drew followers from all corners of the globe who hung on her every word. But one message caught here on tape would test their devotion to the limit. And Saint Germain himself has told us that we have every reason to expect and to be prepared for a Soviet first strike 
against the United States of America. October 2nd of 1987, she gave a dictation that within 24 months, you have to have uh, protection against nuclear attack. We believed that there was going to be global destruction via nuclear war. Apocalypticism, doomsday predictions, are a feature of virtually every religious tradition. According to Dr. Lauren Dawson, even mainstream religions hold apocalyptic beliefs. Christianity, ironically in some respects, is the most apocalyptic of all religions, with the Book of Revelation, of course, which the proper term for it is the apocalypse. But America's history has taught us to beware of leaders who prophesize an imminent doomsday. A little over a decade before Elizabeth Prophet, another self-styled messiah was making apocalyptic predictions. His name was Jim Jones. Jim Jones always was predicting the end of the world. Any day, the world was going to be blown up. Perhaps more than any man alive, Vernon Gosney knows how destructive cult leaders can be. He's one of the only survivors of one of the worst massacres in American history. What first attracted me to Jim Jones and the People's Temple was his vision for the future, for his vision for a community. It's the 1970s in San Francisco, a time when many are searching for new direction. Vernon and thousands of others think the preacher Jim Jones can show them the way. A very charismatic, very powerful speaker. Jones promises the faithful that together they will create a new world, free of the racism, sexism, and homophobia that he says plague America. The people in the temple treated him like a very revered leader, like a prophet. It was very much an immersion type of experience. It would have been hard not to have been impressed by him. Jones's charisma helps him to whip his congregation into a state known as collective effervescence. It's just a word to describe that intense psychological dynamic that gets going in a crowd when they're worked up and they're excited. He generated that week after week after week in his sermons. So that has a powerful impact on people. Jones is so captivating that even prominent politicians like the mayor of San Francisco are drawn to him. But Jones is not the pillar of virtue he pretends to be. He created phony healings in order to amplify people's perception that he had divine powers. <laughs> than that, in 1977, a San Francisco newspaper publishes details of the physical abuse his followers are subjected to. Jim Jones was tipped off it was going to come out and what its contents were, and within a matter of weeks, he told everyone to pack up and move. It was only as authorities were coming after Jim Jones that he decided to move his group down to Guyana. Jones leads hundreds of his followers on an exodus to the socialist South American country of Guyana. They carve a settlement out of remote jungle 
and call it Jonestown. I thought it was going to a promised land. Vernon Gosney and his four-year-old son, Mark, are among the settlers. We were going there to build a city in the middle of the jungle that was going to be a utopia. But this paradise has a dark side. We were met with people with guns. Jonestown, Guyana had been built as a utopia by its founder, Jim Jones. But for Vernon Gosney and his son, Mark, it's turning into a nightmare. I didn't know that I was going to basically a concentration camp where I had no freedom of movement, I had no freedom of speech, that there was going to be loudspeakers going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that I was going to be subject to such severe regimentation. And neither did anyone else that went there. Jim Jones employs armed guards. He says they're to defend Jonestown against threats from outside. If you really want to bring a group of people together in a very tight-knit, cohesive group, you need to create evil outside influences. He was always predicting that it was going to be the CIA, it was going to be the government, they were going to come and get us. Almost every cult leader tells its followers, there are dark forces out to get me, so I need to have security guards. We need to have barbed wire fences, not to keep you in, to keep the bad people from coming in. By isolating his followers in the jungle and inciting paranoia amongst them, Jones makes their devotion grow stronger. It served to, to cement us together. We were in a desperate situation. And in desperate situations, you have to, you have to steal yourself. You have to do what you need to do. Jones's next task is to quell any dissenting voices. He devises tests of his followers' devotion, known as White Knights. White Knights were basically a dress rehearsal for revolutionary suicide. And revolutionary suicide was that we were going to lay down our lives for the cause when there was no other escape whatsoever He was having people line up and drink and then saying it was a test of faith. The cups contain ordinary fruit drink, but Jones tells his followers that one day they might be filled with poison. It was a weeding out mechanism to see who's really committed, to see if people would really do this. And he also knew that by rehearsing something, you start a process of anticipatory socialization to it. Meanwhile, Jim Jones is using LSD and other drugs. His behavior is becoming irrational. His paranoia more extreme. I think it's fair to say that he really had reached a clinical state of paranoia so that he was on the intercom system all day, all night, saying things, encouraging people, denouncing people. That's when it started to go south. California Congressman Leo Ryan has heard about the strange rituals at Jonestown. He travels to Guyana with journalists to investigate. It was at the height of Jim Jones's paranoia that Congressman Ryan arrived. 
Vernon Gosney thinks the visit of the congressman might offer a chance for him to escape Jonestown. He writes a short note that will set off a dramatic chain reaction. I wrote on a sheet of paper, help us get out of Jonestown, and um, decided to slip that note to the congressman. The following day, Jim Jones is confronted with the note. Well, that's who we're talking about. He wants to leave his son here. If Jonestown says you're bad, that's why he's going to leave his son here. Vernon plans to leave Jonestown and return later for his son. Others decide to follow him. There was a snowball effect. Once the crack started to open, more and more people wanted to leave. Congressman Ryan offers Vernon and other defectors safe passage back to America. But Jones won't let this challenge to his authority go unpunished. My feeling that morning was a foreboding. There was a feeling that I was never going to get out of there. We were taxiing down the runway, getting ready to take off when the tractor trailer came. The members leaped out of the back of the truck with their rifles and just opened fire. The NBC cameraman who filmed this footage is shot dead by Jim Jones Henson. The congressman died. Numerous other people died, and many people were injured. Vernon is shot by a fellow passenger who had been posing as a defector. I was shot three times. I got out of the plane, and when I got to the end of the airstrip, that's when I collapsed. As Vernon lies bleeding in the jungle near Kaituma Airfield, Jones is preparing for another white night. But this time, the fruit drink will be laced with cyanide. We have been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. But we tried, and this only worked one day. It was worthwhile. In a rarely broadcast audio tape from November 18th, Jim Jones is heard urging his followers to lay down their lives. So, my opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. They were being told, it's not going to hurt, it's not going to hurt. But as, as the poison was taking effect, people were screaming in agony. Other people lining up were listening to that. And at a certain point, people were like, I don't want to do this. You have to do this. If you don't, we'll shoot you. Six miles away, locals find Vernon Gosney critically wounded on the edge of the airstrip. He's evacuated to Puerto Rico. When I got out of intensive care, I was in a hospital room, and a psychiatrist came into my room and opened up a newspaper and showed me the headlines and the picture with everyone dead.
He asked me what my son was wearing so they could help identify the body. And I told him what he was wearing. And at that point, I was pretty much had like uh, a mental breakdown. The pictures beamed onto America's television screens almost defy belief. Over 900 people lie dead, including almost 300 children. A lot of people say 913 people committed suicide. In my opinion, it was murder. My son was murdered in Jonestown on November 18th with the rest of the children there. To this day, Vernon finds it hard to explain why he left his son Mark at Jonestown. I just feel like that I was so indoctrinated and so programmed that I couldn't even think hardly at all for myself. I don't know what else to say. I don't know if I've ever been able to get my son out. I don't know. Jim Jones also dies at Jonestown. The mass suicide is seen by some as a final demonstration of his power. He was watching the end of his grand social utopian experiment. He either had to let the whole thing fail or he had to go out in a blaze of glory. For Jim Jones, the massacre is also a way to create a lasting legacy. We are still talking about Jim Jones and about his beliefs and ideas long after otherwise we probably would have been. Jonestown remains the largest loss of American civilian life in a non-natural disaster until September 11th, 2001. I must have had dreams for 10 or 15 years about escaping again, escaping again. And I struggled with alcoholism. I struggled with the grief and the loss and the guilt of my son's death. And so it was a very, very long recovery. Now a police officer in Hawaii, Vernon Gosney never wants the lessons of Jonestown to be forgotten. I have to share my experiences, so hopefully the people will be more educated. The dynamics of cults still exist past Jonestown. It didn't end on November 18th, 1978. It continues on. In the late 1980s, the specter of Jim Jones is lurking around a new religious movement in Montana called Church Universal and Triumphant. Once Jonestown happened, everybody was afraid that their kids were going to get caught up in this organization that was going to possibly result even in their death. Ten years after Jonestown, Elizabeth Prophet has her closest followers isolated in a remote valley outside Gardner, Montana. Her word was law, uh, she was the voice of God, and no one questioned her. We come in the moment and the hour of the pinnacle. Elizabeth Clare Prophet, leader of Church Universal and Triumphant, has predicted an imminent nuclear strike. The doomsday date is set for October 2nd, 1989. Leaders often revert to becoming more specific in setting dates because it's a way of galvanizing commitment. But news of the predicted apocalypse causes alarm among nearby residents. They were labeled as a cult, accused of brainwashing people, 
animosities kept growing as more and more church people came here. This town is all about fly fishing, rafting, and tourism. And the church was seen as a threat to that because, you know, we were moving 750 people into this area. So needless to say, relations between the church and the townspeople were kind of frosty. And if locals knew exactly what was going on at nearby Royal Teton Ranch, they'd be even more concerned. We mounted this furious effort over the course of about 18 months to build these huge shelters. As this rarely broadcast footage shows, Believers started to construct an underground city to ride out the nuclear winter. Overseeing it all was Sean Poppett. There were six living pods, uh, each one housing 126 people. They had kitchens, they had showers, they had infirmaries, they had laundry facilities, they had everything that you would need. The largest shelter it was twin arches that were each 300 feet long 40 feet wide 20 feet high you could drive a semi-truck inside that thing many followers donate their savings and work for free we probably spent in the neighborhood of 25 million dollars on the shelter complex that figure doesn't include two years of unpaid labor for around 200 people men and women. And as the doomsday looms closer, preparations become more extreme. We felt that we had every right to defend ourselves. And so a lot of people in the church began to, to buy high-powered weapons. These 50 caliber rifles, according to the manufacturer, are capable of blowing a hole through a car from a mile away. Of course, it made a lot of people very worried about what was going on at the ranch. Erin Prophet is Elizabeth Prophet's daughter. She was due to follow in her mother's footsteps. Well, she never called me her successor, but she was training me to learn how to do what she did, which was take messages from the ascended masters and learn how to give dictations the way she did. In her vision of the four horsemen, she said that there would be economic collapse followed by war, which would be followed by disease and famine, starvation and death. While Elizabeth Prophet warns of an apocalypse, her critics are warning that this combination of religious fervor, weapons and isolation might create another Jonestown massacre. People did have freedom to use the telephone, to correspond, to communicate, they watched the news. So it was not as isolated as Jonestown, but you did have some similarity in the power structure that you had one leader that was basically making all the decisions and there were no checks and balances. Absolute power is dangerous in any leadership situation, but when that power is cloaked in divine conviction, it can drive followers to unfathomable acts. Jonestown proved that, and in 1997, America would be reminded again. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. The 
Doomsday Prophet this time is Marshall Applewhite. The cult he leads is called Heaven's Gate. March 26, 1997. I was just going through my normal routine of loading up my patrol car. But for Sheriff's Deputy Brock, this afternoon shift will be anything but routine. I talked to the dispatcher, and at that time, an anonymous person had reported that a religious group had committed suicide and gave me an address out in uh, Rancho Santa Fe. Deputy Brunk drives out to investigate and finds a mansion with the drapes drawn. When I opened up that door, the smell that came out of the house, you know, right away I knew that someone was dead inside the house. But no one will believe how many bodies are in this mansion. Or what else the police will discover. Some of the men had been castrated. Marshall Applewhite. In the 1970s, this former music teacher founds a religion called Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate was a UFO cult. The basic idea was that they were aliens from another dimension who had come to Earth a long, long time ago, and their people took on human forms to do research. Applewhite tells his followers they are members of an alien race called the Elohim, and that soon they'll be called on to shed their human forms and return to space. We incarnated into these human bodies, and now we're leaving these human bodies behind. Like other self-styled prophets, Applewhite claims he has received a doomsday prophecy, in this case, from an alien race. They had sent the message to Applewhite that uh, they were going to wrap things up and that they were basically going to destroy the planet. In 1997, Applewhite receives a sign that the doomsday has come. A comet called Halbop, visible for the first time in 4,000 years. Applewhite believes that hidden in its tail is a UFO that has come to rescue him and his followers. The rumor mill amongst sort of esoteric groups was that there was something in the tail of the Halbop comet. And Heaven's Gate seemed to seize upon this as evidence that the Elohim were coming in a special ship hidden by the tail of the comet. But to catch the rescue UFO, they have to exit their human bodies. They sat down and did uh, testimonials, videotaped testimonials. So every single member sat down and gave a final little five-minute talk to their relatives and uh, universally happy and overjoyed. I have chosen to do it. It's not somebody, something that somebody brainwashed me into or convinced me of. We're not forced into this in any way. It's you know, our own choosing to do it, and I'm really happy that I made this choice. They're about to leave, and they're excited about it. In late March 1997, when the comet is at its brightest, sedatives are mixed with applesauce. Over three separate days, the 39 cult members assist each other to commit suicide. They worked in shifts to commit the suicide. It wasn't all at one time. 
It was careful, it was calm, it was calculated. They took the phenobarbital, they placed bags over their head and suffocated themselves. On March 26, 1997, police are called to a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, California. As we got into the foyer area, that's when we started noticing bodies. One was on a mattress, then there was one on top of a folding table. The house contains 39 bodies, including that of the group's leader, Marshall Applewhite. They all seem to be dressed alike. Black running gear attire, like a pantsuit and jacket, and they had a patch on their arm that said Heaven's Gate Away Team. When the victims' bodies are examined, the mass suicide takes a further bizarre twist. Some of the men had been castrated. They saw sexual urges as being contaminating, so some members of the group had themselves surgically castrated in order to, you know, help eliminate those sexual urges. And I think it's still hard for some people to understand us how a large group of people could be influenced to that point. It's a question experts still ponder to this day. But while America may have considered the deaths as a tragic waste of life, the followers didn't even regard what they were doing as suicide. They believed that all they were doing was engaging in a transmigration. They were leaving their earthly containers behind and their true nature, their elevated Elohim nature, was going to that spaceship to join with the elders and return to their planet. So they saw this as an act of salvation. It's the drive for salvation that is also motivating Church Universal and Triumphant in late 1980s Montana. Believers are building bunkers in an effort to survive a nuclear strike, and they've stockpiled weapons. Is America about to witness another doomsday massacre? In late 1980s Montana, followers of Church Universal and Triumphant are building a shelter complex at a cost of $25 million. Fully self-contained, underground living for 750 people for seven months. And beyond that, we had a large food storage building that had enough food for all of us to survive for seven years. Believers plan to ride out a predicted nuclear winter and emerge to repopulate America. But there's a snag. Everybody in the organization took it as that the war is coming on October 2nd, 1989. And of course, they were not finished by that date. So another message came out and says, well, you've got till January. And then January, you've got till March. Elizabeth Prophet settles on a revised doomsday date of March 15th, 1990. On March 14th, as night falls, members make final preparations and head underground. Well, it was a madhouse, really, because the shelters really were still not completely finished. 
There was a palpable tension in the air the night that we went into the bomb shelters. We were all on high alert. Though some devotees have been told this is a drill, to Elizabeth Clare Prophet's inner circle, the threat is very real. My mother really believed that something was going to happen on that date, and so she was giving people signals that you really better be ready this time. It's, it's not a drill. They have invested so much in their leader's prediction that to question it now would be unthinkable. There was not much dissension in the group at all. The group went into the shelters uh, calmly, cleanly, no fights, no arguments, and with a great expectation that by the morning, the United States would have been destroyed by a nuclear attack. 750 people have given up everything for the chance to be saved. Deep below ground, they appeal to the ascended masters for protection. There were a lot of decrees going on. Decreeing is a form of high-speed prayer. We thought even if we had done everything physically to prepare, we needed to be prepared spiritually. While chanting, we would basically move the swords back and forth, what we believed as sort of clearing negative energy. As night falls, the devotees brace themselves for a Soviet first strike. At the time, I thought that was it. I thought we were, you know, we were going to be going into a new world. I do recall when the lights were out and it was time for me to go to bed that I was just belted into my bunk, staring up at the ceiling in the darkness and waiting for the shock. But it's a shock that never comes. In the morning, the world is as it was before. The next morning came and it was just like the wind had been taken out of them. How could we have done all of this and nothing have happened? Is anything ever going to happen? And was this all for nothing? You squander your inheritance, sell your car, go deeply into debt, and it's all for nothing. And you realize that not only have you made a fool out of yourself, but you have ruined your family. From this moment, Elizabeth Prophet's hold over her followers begins to weaken. Many ultimately leave the church, including her son, Sean. I felt a big sense of betrayal because this is something I'd given my life to. I trusted her. And all of a sudden, not only uh, was it wrong, but it had been destructive to a community of everyone I'd ever known. His sister, the once anointed successor to Elizabeth Prophet, also leaves the church. I just think that we went way overboard and it was because of our power structure because we, all the power was invested in one person who was making bad decisions. Elizabeth Clare Prophet continues to leave the church until 1999, when Alzheimer's forces her into retirement. 
She dies in 2009. I don't really think too much about her because I consider that kind of a closed chapter in life, but certainly uh, what she stood for, what she represented, was not something I agree with. But the story of Church Universal and Triumphant does not end here. The church remains on Royal Teton Ranch, and so do its bunkers. Today, people are going, wow, you guys built shelters, you were ahead of your time. Teton Ranch, Montana. Since the failed prophecy, Church Universal and Triumphant have kept a close eye on people who venture near their property, leading many to question just what do they have to hide. Then in July 2012, the church attempts to end the speculation by allowing our cameras a rare chance to film on their property. Mrs. Prophet was guided uh, in the early 80s to come here and develop this beautiful land. And we consider this a spiritual piece of property. We consider it sacred land. Current church president Valerie McBride says the church doesn't deserve to be labeled a cult. It's so interesting that people would think that we're a cult because, again, we have really become mainstream. We've been around for over 55 years. Despite the fact that we did have the shelters at that time, nobody got hurt. Everybody's still here. We've had the shelters 15 years ago. We were around 35 years before that. It's 15 years later and we're still here. Everybody's alive, things are good, and we're looking forward to a bright future. As for Elizabeth Prophet's prediction, some current members claim it never happened. Reason to expect and to be prepared for a Soviet first strike against the United States of America. Mrs. Prophet never predicted that anything bad would happen. She just said, these shelters are here, should you need them. We built the shelters more or less as a spare tire or an insurance policy. It's a comfort that they're there, but I quite honestly, all of us hope that they never get used. For Sean Prophet, the path from born believer to total atheist is complete. I learned a lot of lessons growing up in this church, and the biggest lesson I learned was that religion is not a phenomenon that really adds to the human experience. The benefits are not worth the cost. Whatever you think you're getting from religion, you pay a heavy price. From our perspective, it would be helpful if he would be able to just respect our wishes and just let things go. You know, the past was the past. We've moved on. Um, it'd be really nice if he could too. Sociologists who have studied the group in recent years believe they have moved on from their apocalyptic past and should be allowed to worship as they please. In the actual act of the prophecy and trying to fulfill the prophecy, they didn't break any laws and nobody was physically hurt or harmed in any way. They have, as far as I know, totally abandoned the apocalyptic scenario. The organization is continuing, and yes, they do deserve to be known as a legitimate religion. Church Universal and Triumphant may have relegated their apocalyptic predictions to history, but across America, religious leaders continue to make prophecies. Christian preacher Harold Camping set two doomsday dates in 2011. 
and a Miami-based group called Growing Embrace International reportedly predicted an apocalypse for June 30th, 2012. Doomsday religions are also adapting to the digital age. Most people are being recruited on the internet now. Very interestingly, on discussion boards, on websites. One of cult expert Steve Hassan's concerns is a Korean religious group known for producing apocalyptic videos. They are currently recruiting in America. There's a lot of very emotional scenes of uh, death, destruction, natural calamities, basically making it sound like the only people on earth doing God's will is this particular group, and that if you don't do what they tell you, then you're gonna be killed. Stockpiling Bibles, gathering supplies, making bunkers, training children. Christians across America are getting ready. It's clear in the Bible that the end times are not going to be a fun time to be around. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. I believe there's going to be huge earthquakes. I believe there will also be panic in the streets and the, and the looting and killing. That's, that's going to go on for seven years. They believe the apocalypse is coming because they read it in the Bible. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I mean, you talk about Noah's flood, that's nothing compared to what we're talking about here. Going off the grid. Well, this is what they call a sun oven. You can put a whole turkey in this thing. Digging deep underground. It's approximately uh, 14 feet down. Packing heat. This is great to have a case for a home invasion. And spreading the word. We decided pretty much that we were going to blow operation security in the interest of getting the word out to other people. With one hand on the holy book, and the other on their survival gear is the tool itself, the Bible. This is the word that's the ultimate survival manual. Meet the Bible Preppers. Across America, preparing for doomsday has become a national phenomenon. But now, a new type of prepper is taking the country by storm. They get their guidance from the Bible. To have everlasting life. I believe the Bible is the first and the main prepping tool out today. These Bible preppers use the scriptures to tell them what's coming and how to prepare for it. From the suburbs of Georgia to the deserts of Arizona to small town Ohio, they're sounding a holy warning. Things are going to get crazy before the Lord returns. In Norwalk, Ohio, Christians Phil Hovatter and his wife Sandy are absorbed in Sunday worship. King of kings and Lord of lords. Sandy's not just a follower, she's an ordained minister. And made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Say that. My calling is to help people to create an environment where people can grab hold of the truth and the grace that God has for them. But Sandy and Phil have another calling too. One that involves stockpiling supplies, preserving meals, and studying the Bible for survival clues. They're Bible preppers 
who believe Jesus Christ might soon return. It will be a, a worldwide event. It will be the end of time. When it happens, it's going to happen very suddenly. And uh, those who are prepared for it are prepared. Those who are not have missed their opportunity. Jesus Christ's second coming is prophesied in the Bible, including in the book of Revelation. Many Bible preppers believe those prophecies are coming true. When I first became a believer in Jesus Christ back in 1971, I was reading uh, through the New Testament for the first time. I came to passages like Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21, the book of Revelations, where it talks about end-time events. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. I was so gripped by those when I first read them, I said, he's talking about now. He's talking about today, my lifetime right here, right now. That's been 42 years ago. And I can still look at those passages and say, you know, they're even closer to being fulfilled right now than they were then. The Bible warns that the time around the second coming will be marred by horrific events. There's going to be uh, a lot of natural disasters of, uh, of a scale magnitude that we've never seen, truly going to be the literal biblical proportion type disaster. And uh, along with that has to be just massive civil unrest. Which is one of the reasons the Hovatters have begun preparing. Hey, this is our basement pantry area. This is actually phase one of our food storage plan. These are things that you can buy at the grocery store. Uh, soup in cans, dried soup, macaroni and cheese, spaghetti, sardines, all kinds of uh, basic food products that would keep us going through a short to medium term disaster of some sort. The Hovatters are just beginning their prepping. But one thing that makes them very different from ordinary preppers is what they choose to stockpile. We bought a couple of cases of Bibles as amongst the first preparations that we did. Phil figures when times get hard, God's word will be the first thing people will need. These are uh, paperback Bibles we can give out to people in the community. Phil and Sandy haven't always been Bible preppers. They first met as Air Force cadets in college. We met first day of class in September. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with her instantly when we were on a, a field trip for school in uh, Homestead, Florida. They flew us down for a weekend, and uh, I saw her in her swimsuit by the pool. <laughs> Many years ago. That's the one. But they weren't a match made in heaven. She told me one day that uh, actually she very far from being a Christian and she was an atheist. And uh, my reaction to that was totally spontaneous. I just blurted out, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. Despite their differences, the pair marry in 1977. Within a year, Sandy also becomes a Christian. But it's not until 2012 that Phil raises the subject of readying for global disasters. 
Phil sat me down at the dining room table one day and said, we need to talk about something. And so he told me about um, how uh, God had been impressing on him the need to prepare for a time when life would not be as it is now. We're talking 2012 when when I started to uh, look into this. There were a lot of problems with finances in Greece and Spain, Portugal, uh, Ireland. So economic issues certainly were, were one of the things I saw. But there were other things. Summer of 2012, there was a lot of solar flare activity. We're seeing tsunamis. I mean, the word tsunami was not in the American vocabulary until 10 or 15 years ago. To Phil, all these happenings suggested the end times may be near. Well, we're going to make Spanish beefy rice, right? And that a seven-year time of torment, known as the Great Tribulation, might soon begin. The Bible definitely talks about tribulation time coming at the end times. And... Uh, seven years of, of very rough going. Well, it's going to taste just like uh, the Spanish rice that your mama used to make. That's why instead of watching a game on a Monday night, the Hovetters are vacuum sealing meals to see them through whatever disasters lie ahead. Okay, you want to get the hose out? Okay. Seat that firmly. And How do you know when it's done? It turns itself it's off, so just hot. like that. All you have to do is take out the jar, put it in five and a half cups of boiling water, and half an hour later, you've got really good beefy Spanish rice. Among Bible preppers, one question looms large. Just how much of the seven-year tribulation will they have to prepare for? Some say believers will be saved before it even begins in a moment known as the rapture. The Bible describes a time when believers are taken out of the world, and that's called the rapture. The Bible describes them as believers being taken up to meet the Lord in the air. According to how the Bible is interpreted, the rapture could happen either pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. Some people believe the rapture happens at the beginning of that seven-year period. Some people believe it happens in the middle. And some people believe it happens at the end of that seven-year period. Where you stand on the pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation spectrum guides just how much food you need to stockpile. You can come and take me anytime you want. But if I were to have to come down on one opinion, I tend to be more mid-trib these days. This is some of our dehydrated food products that we have. Uh, we've got some, that means uh, Phil will have to survive three and a half years of violent tribulation. And he doesn't have enough food stored yet. We've probably got, oh, I would say about a year and a half's worth for the two of us. But if you think these mild-mannered Bible preppers will be an easy target in the end times, think again. Coming up, why some Christians are training in survival. Follow us we pray. And self-defense. It's going to be so much chaos and panic. People are going to be starving. They'll be having to eat each other to survive. Since Christian couple Phil and Sandy Hovatter became Bible preppers, they've had to learn some unexpected new skills. 
I consider a firearm to be used as a weapon of last resort, of but last resort in, in cases of uh, protecting our person and hopefully never our property. But, you know, you have to do what you have to do in order to survive. Just because the Hovatters are Christians who love thy neighbor doesn't mean they're not ready to defend their preps. If you had told me a year and a half ago that I would have, uh, I think it's eight handguns, um, and that I would be able to shoot them, I would have said, you're confusing me with some other Sandy. But how does using lethal force jive with the Hovatter's Christian principles? From a Christian perspective, the Ten Commandments in common English say, Thou shalt not kill. A better translation of that passage would be, Thou shalt not murder. God doesn't sanction murder. God has sanctioned a lot of killing over the course of human history. He calls nation to go war against nation. So God is not strictly opposed to killing. God is opposed to murder. And, and when I defend myself, I am not committing an act of murder. I am committing an act of self-defense. I'm not a marksman by any means, but I've become confident that I can hit a person's center mass if I need to. I've never had to point a gun at someone, even in jest, and, and uh, pull the trigger. I hope I never, ever have to. It's, it's against you know, decent human nature to even do such a thing as that. But when you're faced in a life-threatening uh, life, uh, situation, you do what you have to to protect your life and the lives of your loved mm -hmm. ones. What makes Bible preppers different from other preppers is that many want to help others survive the end times. We started our, our website called The Approaching Day Prepper. We post articles on there. We are sort of chronicling the, the types of preps that Sandy and I are doing and also sharing the tips and tricks that we've learned. While most preppers like to keep their activities secret, for Christians Phil and Sandy, it's about spreading the word. A lot of preppers, most preppers I would say, keep their activities um, on the down low. They, they're quiet about it because of the very thing that Sandy said about, you know, if you say something, if people's first reaction is, oh, if anything goes wrong, I'm coming to your house. Well, not only are they going to come to your house, but they're going to bring everybody they've ever told about you mm -hmm. to, to your house. And, and their whole family. And uh, suddenly the situation becomes unmanageable. And so most preppers uh, practice what they call operations security, OPSEC, where they keep their, uh, their preparations uh, private and quiet. We decided pretty much that we were going to blow operations security mm -hmm. in the interest of getting the word out to other people. This is what we are doing. We want you to do it too. As new preppers, we felt like we had a different voice. The voice that says, you don't need to be stressed. You can do this in a calm way and with faith. And you can do it by taking these baby steps. And once you've got the baby steps, then you take the next steps. Phil and Sandy believe that God will look after his flock. But they also have to look after themselves. Uh, we see uh, back in the days of Noah, God warned Noah of the coming flood. 
and Noah went and built a boat. God didn't provide the boat for him. God didn't provide all the supplies for him. Noah had to do the work. So God always works with people in partnership. I want to be ready if, if life changes. I don't want to be the one who is totally incapable of, uh, of living in that new way. That's why I'm preparing, you know? That's why I'm learning how to build a fire. When was the last time I built a fire? When I was a Girl Scout in seventh grade or something? I don't know. As for when Jesus is due back, Phil's not ready to put a date on it. It's been 2,000 years. It might be another 2,000 years before Jesus comes again. I don't know. But everything's in place. There's nothing I see that would prevent it from happening very soon. Meanwhile, 700 miles south in McDonough, Georgia, there's a whole family of preppers who also take their cues from the Bible. It's like Noah, he told him to go out prepare. He told everybody to, hey, come with me, help me prepare. They didn't listen, they thought it was a joke. But it happened. Father's now we pray. John 3.16, so turn to the book of John. Mark Sanders is a Georgia father of four. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's a good Christian who fears God. Should not perish, but have everlasting But his greatest fear is not being ready for the disasters he's read about in the Holy Book. In the Bible, it states that in the times comes during the tribulation, it's going to be so much chaos and panic. People are going to be starving, having to eat each other to survive. So Mark's begun preparing his family. He believes prepping is part of every Christian father's God-given role. I believe, being the man of the family, I believe God's given me certain skills to, to be able to prepare and the mindset. It's a role he sees outlined in the Bible's Timothy chapter 5. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It states that if I don't prepare for my family and friends, and especially my immediate family, that I'm going to be worse off than a non-believer. What I have here, I have a bug out bag. It's for me personally. It's to put anything you can put in there to survive on. Fire starters, food, cook kits, medical equipment, your shelter, that sort of thing. Here we have my hatchet. You gotta have your flint steel to start fire. What are you gonna do? If the trucks stop rolling because they're out of fuel, there's not gonna be a grocery store around where you can just go pick up the nearest hamburger. And the very last thing, but it's the first thing you should put in your bag, the Bible. I believe you should have the Bible with you in your bug out bag. Because that's gonna be your manual and your word. This is the ultimate survival manual. It will give you all the answers and it has the word of God in it. Guys, first thing you have to do, we, got, we had to find some dry wood. You got to start off with little small pieces. Might take a few shots, hopefully not. It's what Mark sees in the Bible that sends him out into the woods, training his family to live without the conveniences of modern life. 
There's certain um, scriptures in the Bible that I believe I take it as uh, preparing. Once we get a fire going, guys, we got to put something over the top to put the pots and pans on because if you don't have a, a metal grill or something, what else you going to have? It's what like you gotta have Noah's something. Ark. He told him to get every kind of food that's available for the people and for the animals. So around here, we're just going to use some, some of this wet wood. So we got to keep prepared to get through the hard times. Mark thinks one day soon, we have a uh, trigger system here. His kids' lives may depend on knowing survival skills, like how to set a trap for wild game. We're going to build a snare for a larger animal like a deer, and if we do drop it lower, you can catch a coyote, bobcat, fox, or something like that. It's going to run. It's going to hook his neck. It's going to come through here, pull it. When it pulls tight, Everybody thinks this prep and stuff is absolutely crazy. But in the old days, that's how they lived before we're doing now. We're just used to having a bag of potato chips at any given time. Now, pretend you're a deer. This is going back to what probably our grandparents are doing, especially our great-grandparents and before them. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we had together, Lord. And thank you so much, Lord, for blessing us with this deer we have. Once you have uh, killed an animal throw deer meat in a skillet, cook up some potatoes you grow in your garden, some carrots, some peppers, whatever you have. Teach them how to cook it up. Mark believes that during the coming turmoil, knowing how to get by out here in the woods could be crucial to survival. This is the way to do it in the bush. Survival. Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 10. The heavens shall pass away with great noise. I do believe when he returns, um, there's going to be natural disasters. I believe there's going to be huge earthquakes. And the elements shall melt the fervent heat. There'll also be panic in the streets and the, and the looting and killing. It's going to go on for seven years. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. He said he's going to release his anger. And it's going to be unlike that you've never seen before. So the Every Sunday, Mark and his family attend their local church to prepare themselves spiritually. But after the service, there are preparations of a different kind. One, two, three. One, two. One, two. One of the first things that we were training on that I started them on is uh, boxing. He teach them to jab, the uh, cross, and the hook. Mark's Christian faith has led him to value his family above all. And in the end times, he wants them to be able to defend themselves. Today we're going to go over a simple gun disarmament. It's going to be one handgun. It is plastic, it's fake. By no means do you ever point a gun of any type to anybody. This is a training gun, all right? All right, point that at me, Dean. I don't have a thing here. These Christian kids, 11-year-old Nicole, 10-year-old Dean, 9-year-old Joshua, and 7-year-old Summer won't be turning the other cheek. No, come here. Let me show you real quick. You got to step forward that foot. Turn sideways, step forward. Now step back. And I wouldn't say every kid needs to learn how to do this because it is dangerous, but it, sometimes you might not have any other choice but to try to disarm a gun. Put your hands up. Like his kids, Mark's wife, Haiti is on board with the prepping lifestyle. I think about it often because we never know when something's going to happen. We got to be prepared. You never know when you're going to be in a situation where 
you're going to need it. Lay your hand down on mine. Push it forward. Yeah, I'm teaching my wife, Haiti, um, some hand-to-hand combat because that's real important for females to know because if they get attacked, normally they're they're a little weaker than a man. They're going to end up on the ground, so they got to know how to defend themselves. Squeeze. Like other Bible preppers, Mark wants to help other believers prepare. So he has started a web channel to tell them how. He says sourcing water should be number one in everyone's end time survival plan. Food should be number two. And the third essential? 12 gauge. And I believe the third thing is going to be firearms. You got to have a means to protect yourself. You got to have knowledge of firearms, different ammo, when to use it, when not to use it. Mark is armed for the apocalypse with a 7.62 millimeter rifle, 38 revolver, 45 pistol, 9 millimeter pistol, 12 gauge shotgun, 410 shotgun, and a military style AR 15 assault rifle. Some of these guns are for hunting. You can kill anything from a squirrel with a smaller caliber, a rabbit, all the way up to deer, elk, moose, wherever you get your hands on if, uh, when times get tough. But other weapons are for self-defense. So this is great to have in case for a home invasion or somebody wants to get a little crazy and come in on you and try to take what you've, what you've worked for. I believe God allowed us to have weapons to defend ourselves. I wouldn't think twice about using a firearm if it has to do with protecting my family and myself and my friends. He hopes it won't come to that because his fourth essential tip for when the tribulation starts is get out of town, way out of town. Because when it gets bad, people are going to come loot and take what we have. So we have stuff stored out in different places. We have a, a place in Kentucky where we keep... A large amount of food, large amount of water, that would be a meet-up place. It's kind of hidden away, so we'd get out of this area. According to Mark, the most significant prepping advice of all within the Bible is that Jesus and the Great Tribulation could come at any moment. In Matthew 24, it states that you don't know the, the time or hour that the Lord's coming. So in my eyes, that's telling me I better be prepared. It could be now, five seconds from now, it could be a thousand years because you do not know. So I believe that is a huge sign to always be prepared. Don't ever turn your back on it. But there are many different views on how to be ready. Coming up, one Bible prepper who may have the ultimate preparation strategy. Satan and his fallen angel are standing outside that door right now, puking their guts up about me telling the, the truth about how to be prepared for this end time. Somewhere in Texas, this looks like an ordinary farm, but hidden beneath the surface. We've done the food, off-grid solar power. Just about everything has been uh, prepared for. The prepper who lives here would like it to stay hidden. So he doesn't want to reveal its exact location or his whole name. He just wants to be known as Alan. I've spent several hundred thousand dollars uh, trying to, uh, to be prepared. 
Alan's a father of two and has been married for 29 years. He first started prepping when he noticed the world around him was changing for the worse. Uh, when you live 50 years and you start out uh, in a society that's one way and you see it start to change extremely to the other side, then yeah, there's a fear that things are changing in the world. And it's pretty clear in Revelations what, what, what we're facing. You know, everything that's mentioned, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, uh, pandemics, uh, they're all, they're all present. Convinced the prophesied end time was near, Alan began readying. I started by moving to the country, and then as things progressed along with the almost financial collapse in 2008, I started getting real serious um, about preparing. Serious enough to dig a bunker deep below his farm. It's approximately uh, 14 feet down in the ground. And uh, this is where we would come if we had some kind of a threat from the environment or nuclear or nature, such as a storm. Alan believes in a post-tribulation rapture, which means enduring all seven years of tribulation. For proof that it's upon us, he looks to Matthew chapter 24. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Well, Jesus said there will be earthquakes in diverse places. Texas has never been a place that you thought you'd have an earthquake, yet we're starting to have them here. Elsewhere on his farm, more structures purpose-built for the apocalypse. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that there would be wars and rumors of wars. This is a building that we built to withstand the threats of the times to come. This building is built with metal ceilings, metal walls, so that it will withstand an electromagnetic pulse. The biggest concern uh, from an electromagnetic pulse is a nuclear weapon being set off above the United States, which would send out a, a, a wave that would literally melt wiring and electronics. And so to protect it, the wiring has to be shielded. Basically, what we do is we build what's called a Faraday cage, and that consists of a metal layer between us and the outside that's grounded that would catch this wave and divert it into the ground. It's an airtight building so that it'll withstand contaminants from uh, breaching in the walls. Um, we have food storage here. But you have to really think out about uh, you know, I might be eating this stuff for the next three, four years. It takes a lot of time and a lot of preparation. And 
this is just the tip of the iceberg of the things that you try to do in order to be prepared. Alan's prepping has taken years, and it's cost him a fortune. These are the batteries that power is stored from the solar cells. And we have 26,000 pounds of batteries right here. Uh, that represents 120 individual batteries in these racks. About $120,000. But Alan, who spent almost a half million dollars getting prepared, says there's something even more important than having bunkers, food stockpiles, and banks of backup power. It's having faith. I guarantee you, you can't see it, but I'm surrounded by God's angels right now. And Satan and his fallen angels are standing outside that door right now, puking their guts up about me telling the, the truth about how to be prepared for this end time, because he has no power over me anymore. Alan has always been a Christian, but in recent years, he was born again and started studying the Bible anew. It changed his attitude to being prepared forever. I came to the conclusion that the preparation needed to change gears. I needed to go a different direction. That different direction? Preparing spiritually. Now that his faith is strong, he says he doesn't fear death in the end times because he knows he'll have a place in heaven. I used to be very afraid of, of the things that were coming during the tribulation. But Satan and his antichrist have no power over me anymore. Uh, they definitely have power over this flesh, uh, but they don't have power over my soul and my spirit. If a nuclear warhead falls on this body this afternoon, I'm guaranteed that I'm going to get a new one. Uh, an eternal body, according to scriptures. From deep underground to way off the map. Coming up, the Bible prepper who sees dark days ahead. We're seeing storms that have almost never been seen before. People are starting to say, maybe we are entering the end times. Across America, Devout Christians are preparing for disasters predicted in the Bible. Be prepared and stock your food and be ready. Food is going into storage. Children are being trained. Guns are being stockpiled. And in Texas, Bible prepper Allen spent years getting prepared for every possible scenario. Including the crash of America's currency. When he'll start trading... In gold, you can just barter with it. It's a, a means of barter. People recognize gold as a, a store of wealth, as something of value. The face value of this coin is $50, but in actuality, at the time that we're currently in, this coin's worth about $1,300 to $1,350. That's $25,000 in small change in Allen's hand. And to protect these preps... There's no shortage of options. Everything from ARs to AKs to SKs to Mini-14s to you name it. 
I think we pretty much have it. If for some reason he can't get to these guns, he could always stash some anywhere on his property using a special technique. Well, this is a way that you store guns for long term. Oil them and vacuum seal them, and then they can be stored underwater, in the ground, anywhere for long periods of time. This particular gun's been uh, bagged up like this for three years. I've both tested them uh, by burying them, and I've tested them by, uh, by storing them underwater. The reason secretive Allen's revealing some of his preps, it's because by doing so, he hopes to warn other Christians what's coming. When you come to a knowledge of Bible prophecy, it very much becomes your responsibility as a Christian uh, to tell others. Allen's final message for Christians. As the end times near, even if you haven't prepared physically, make sure you're prepared spiritually. You can be at comfort and peace during the tribulation and know for a fact that you've got your ticket and, and uh, that's the most important thing. But to other Bible preppers, the best ticket to survival is to get way off the beaten path and way off the grid. The sooner, the better. So there will be famine and there will be wars, there'll be anarchy. If you're out in the country, you know, where there's less people, it's probably a safer place to be. John Shorey was a traveling evangelist before retiring to his small Arizona farm. But while other retirees are looking forward to a safe, secure future, John's preparing for the worst. There's a period of time before that last seven years that Jesus referred to as a time of birth pains where we would see an increase of earthquakes and natural disasters. We're seeing storms at category levels that have almost never been seen before. All of a sudden, now people are starting to say, wow, maybe we are entering the end times. I heard, but I did not understand. After studying the Bible, John's Christian values compelled him to warn other believers by writing a book. I actually believe that we're entering what I call a window of the Lord's return, that sometime between now and 2020, we'll actually see the Lord coming back. And, uh, and those, the Bible, you know, lays out that those are going to be some pretty trying years. Trying years where, according to John's interpretation of the book of Revelation, food won't be readily available. Reveal the man doomed to destruction. The Bible says that in the last days that a quart of wheat will cost a day's wages, which means that either food becomes very scarce or money loses a lot of value. So during that period, the people will literally be starving to death. So it's not going to be a pretty picture. But John doesn't plan to be amongst the starving. Coming up, his off-the-grid techniques to provide his own food during the end times. We are literally in the time of the last days right now. You can put a whole turkey in this thing. 
In deepest, driest Arizona, John Shorey is attempting to turn a patch of desert into a haven from the horrors of the Great Tribulation. All of these people that were scoffing and laughing at Noah, but when the rain started falling, they were all knocking at his door saying, can I come into the ark? John used to believe Christians would be raptured or saved before the Great Tribulation, but now he's firmly in the mid-tribulation camp. And with mid-trib, uh, my position is showing that we will go through three and a half years of tribulation. To survive those three and a half years, John's aiming to be self-sufficient. So he's got over 20 chickens and guinea fowl, growing 60 nut and fruit trees, maintaining up to a dozen beehives, and storing six months of water. We've put in two 5,000-gallon tanks so that when we're not using water, we can fill up that as our reserve. We could literally see uh, infrastructure going down. We could see the grid go down to where water's not going to come out of your tap anymore. And uh, so people should have, you know, barrels of water or some way of storing extra water because without water, you know, we're in trouble. John's also figured out a way to make the desert bloom. He's transforming its infertile soil into farm loam ideal for cultivation. Well, this is actually where I'm currently composting. And basically what I do is I pick up anywhere from two to a dozen boxes of throwaway produce at a local grocery store. And I just keep spreading it out on in layers. And there's hundreds or over a thousand worms in this bed making fertilizer. You're getting this rich, brown, excellent texture soil that uh, things just can grow very well. When his greenhouse is completed, John and his family will be able to live indefinitely off the produce they grow. And after harvesting his crops, John's got an off-the-grid way to turn them into a meal. Well, this is what they call a sun oven and uh, uses, you know, solar to cook on. This thing works virtually anywhere in the United States where you have sun to partial sun. They say that if you can see your shadow, this thing will function and will work. You can boil rice, we've cooked cookies, we've baked bread, you can put a whole turkey in this thing. This morning it was in the 40s, it might be in the 50s right now, and it's over 300 degrees inside that oven. In fact, that water in that bottle is boiling. I've cooked roasts in an hour's time by putting them into a glass jar like that. But why all this preparation? And why urge others to do it too? What makes John Shorey believe the end times are upon us? There's a whole number of prophetic events that are all falling in the same window of time that is pointing to a strong possibility that we are literally in the time of the last days right now uh, leading up to the Lord's return. He says if you read the news, the signs are everywhere. Like the conflict in Syria, which he believes aligns with a prophetic Bible scripture. Because in Psalms 83, it says that Damascus will be destroyed, never to be inhabited again. 
Well, this prophecy has never been fulfilled. And it, to me, it makes sense that Israel will be involved in this and they will probably be pushed back against a wall to where they'll use a nuclear bomb against a city in Syria, Damascus. But John Shorey's not the only one sounding a warning. In Texas, there's a pastor so sure the end times are coming, he's built his reputation and his business on it. So it's been this way for a while. We're talking about an apocalyptic event of unprecedented proportions. Coming up... I think you should be watching it. The man who's on a holy mission to get the whole world to prepare. In Dallas, Texas, a business owner is planning renovations. This thing we got to do is to seal it so that radiation cannot get in. He wants to shield his studio from a nuclear war that's prophesized in the Bible. We're talking about an apocalyptic event of unprecedented proportions. I mean, you talk about Noah's flood, that's nothing compared to what we're talking about here. Irvin Baxter is a minister on a mission. Out of the blue comes this announcement. Hamas. He's been studying Bible prophecy for over 30 years. And he's got an alarming message. Well, there's a huge breaking story in the news today. We're a lot closer to the end of everything than most people realize we are. Irvin Baxter is so sure that we're nearing the apocalypse. He staked his reputation and his business on it. End Time Ministries is broadcasting radio shows, producing DVDs, TV shows, and magazines. We have our End Time magazine. This is published bi-monthly. Uh, it goes out all over the world. Irvin Baxter's got thousands of followers worldwide and 40 staff, including his daughter, Kara. We have all uh, bought into Urban's dream and into his vision. And so all of us have that same common denominator, you know, that, that we're all working towards and striding, striding toward. The goal, to prepare all of the world for the coming of Jesus and the tribulation. We're so short on time, you know, with World War III possibly coming up and everything else. We want to get this message out as soon as we possibly can. Of most concern to Irvin, a passage in the book of Revelation that predicts we're headed for nuclear war. We know a war is coming that's going to kill one-third of mankind. Much of the world is going to be affected. Irvin believes in a post-tribulation rapture, meaning Christians will have to endure all seven years of tribulation. So what is he doing personally to prepare himself and his business? Okay, now, Kara, what I think we could do, let's go over here and take a look at this. We can totally seal this in, even across the bottom here and right at the middle. That would be part of what we could do. Okay. And then... I have made inquiries recently about what it would take to turn our studio into a safe room. The biggest thing we got to do is to seal it so that radiation cannot get in. Right. Uh, there's going to be nuclear exchanges. 
our ministries right here in Dallas. Could Dallas be hit by such an exchange? Possibly. While we're in a safe place, we can also be on the air broadcasting 24-7. That's our main thing that we want to do. When the tribulation arrives and nuclear bombs are falling, Irvin plans to be bunkered down here, broadcasting advice both spiritual and practical. The most important thing, number one, with you and your loved ones and your family, to have a plan. Say, okay, if all cell phones are gone, if all electricity is gone, where do we meet? And if people can immediately go there, and they've made some preparations, they have some things stored there, then they can possibly ride out the situation. The reason Irvin can't rest in his mission to let Christians know? He believes an imminent event in the Middle East could soon cause the tribulation to kick off. The Bible prophesies an event called the Confirmation of the Covenant. It actually will be the signing of a Middle East peace agreement. That peace agreement will establish a Palestinian state. When that agreement happens, that marks the beginning of the final seven years. Irvin believes that agreement could happen soon, which means we are here to declare absolutely we are in the end time right now. We're very near the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Guided by the Holy Book, Christians across America are on a crusade to save themselves and their neighbors. Spreading the word that the time to get busy is right now. I believe every person should pray up. You have to take care of your family. It's written in the Bible. They may not know the exact day or hour of Christ's return, but America's Bible preppers are certain of one thing. They won't be caught unaware. The wise man sees trouble coming, and he prepares for it.
Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search D2R Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the D2R Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're going to find Deadpool boxers. Amazon. We're going to find edible Rosie O'Donnell underwear. Amazon. We're going to get an industrial-sized tubo lube. Amazon. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. I'm rubbing it. So there I am in my car, listening to shitty music. And I ask myself the tough questions. Why am I listening to the same song over and over again when I could be listening to the D2R Podcast Network? And is it true that he who smelt it dealt? And why the fuck did the chicken cross the road? And what the hell is on Joey's head? Hey, I wonder if Yoko Ono saw yesterday, today. I wonder if tomorrow was yesterday. Rockford reference. The D2R Podcast Network. Live for today. Or yesterday.